Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule, four things they cherish and would like to keep safe, and one thing they loathe and would like to get rid of by burying it in the ground. And yes, we've reached episode 98, just two from our very special 100th edition. And actually, that must be a very special episode, particularly as my guest on the mere 98th is the brilliant stand-up comedian and actor Alan Davis. Alan graduated with a degree in drama and theatre studies from the University of Kent in 1988, and by 1991, he was being voted the best young comic by Time Out. They weren't wrong either. Alan's stand-up career has gone from strength to strength, but it's his TV career that has really brought him to the nation's attention, playing Jonathan Creek in the long-running series of the same name, written by David Rennick, who also wrote One Foot in the Grave. Jonathan Creek won a BAFTA for Best Drama. Alan has done a host of other television and radio shows over the years, whilst continually appearing, especially on the TV channel Dave, as the only permanent panellist on the quiz show QI, which started in 2003 when it was hosted by Stephen Fry. It's still going strong, or even stronger, and is now hosted by Sandy Toxvig. During the filming of the QI Christmas episode in 2020, Alan set the new Guinness World Record for the most Christmas crackers pulled by an individual in 30 seconds. God, he must be proud. He pulled 35 crackers. Alan is a lifelong Arsenal supporter, but despite that, he's a lovely man, whose past is full of wonderful things and some not so wonderful, as you can find out now. I hope you enjoy it. (music) 
So, Alan, it's really lovely to have you on my time capsule. It's very sweet of you, because I have to say, it's taken us a while to get together, hasn't it? Yes, it has uh, a bit. Well, I, at the time I was first in touch with you, there were, I was doing publicity uh, for my book that was out in September yeah. 2020. So here we are, early 2021. And I, and I wasn't feeling so robust at the time about talking about my book, which, as you know, it's a very personal mm. story about my childhood and childhood trauma and what have you but I feel, now I feel a little bit more able now the book's out in the world and it sold some copies and I've had some nice responses from readers I'm through what could have been traumatic as <laughs> I'm into <laughs> calmer waters because you get that sort of feeling <laughs> are people going to be just go oh for god's sake why did you write this or are they going to say oh thank you for writing that um well I've had um I've had good response from readers certainly um it it's a tricky one because it's my family life. You know, I've had some correspondence with my sister about it. It's less comfortable for people who are... But what I've tried to do with my book, I've tried to write about my own experience and my story, and it's oh. a story of bereavement and loss, but also a story of abuse. And and I feel so I need to be able to, as they say in the common parlance, I need to be able to own that. I need to be able to have that experience as mine, not to carry any shame, not to feel as though uh, I need to tread carefully when I talk about my experience in my life and my childhood, just lest I upset anybody or lest I tread on anyone's toes. Um, sometimes if you are uh, what used to be called a victim and what's now called a survivor, hmm. Uh, you have to you know, remind yourself that you're allowed to say how it makes you feel and how it's affected you and what your story is. You're not obligated to always think about somebody else. And I think it took me until I was in my early 50s to write my story because I was still really protecting um, the person. And um, that is that I know uh, in my heart that that is where a lot of people are. Mm. Uh, who have been abused. And I know that a lot of people, had I ever stood on stage at a stand-up gig and said, has anyone out here had an experience like this and told my story, someone would have put their hand up. You know, I know there are people carrying these stories and these secrets. And I know from one of the good things about social media um, is that people can contact you if you've written something, if you publish something. They can contact you directly and they can say uh, I've had a, an experience similar to yours and I've never told anyone. And a few people have done that. And I said right at the beginning of publishing my book, which I've tried to make, it's not a, it's not a misery memoir. I've tried to keep humour there. It's not about self-pity. It's not about vengeance. It's about telling the, a story that's been really bugging me. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, I, and I wanted it to be, from the beginning, something that if one person felt better for it, helped by it, helped like somebody had reached a hand out and they were able to say, oh, wow, somebody's like, I'm not the only one. Then I've done what I set out to do. So and so that's where that's where I've been. Uh, it took me a long time to write. I worked on the book uh, doing a master's at Goldsmiths College mm -hmm. uh, where I went to try and improve as a writer and to study the craft and to be a student anyway. And I never really knew what would, if I would publish something at the end of that time. It was a two-year part-time course that I did between 2016 and 2018. But I loved going there on a Wednesday. I loved being a student. Mm -hmm. I liked every bit of it. I liked going in the library. I liked the fact that 
uh, I'd say three out of ten library cards don't open the gate. (laughs) (laughs) I I liked all the guys on the reception. I liked all the... All of my tutors were fantastically educational and inspiring. I I made lots of friends amongst the other students. I like going to the pub. You went south of the river? Yeah, and the great thing about the people who live in London will know that when the 2012 Olympics was held in London, there were many improvements made to public transport. Yes. <laughs> and, and one of them was the expansion of the overground network, which when, uh, you know, I was growing up, was a mixture of odd little railway lines that went hither and thither and never really... You had to buy a separate ticket for everyone, and it was a nightmare. <laughs> and now you could just beep your card and off you go. And so I could get easily from my house in uh, NW3 all the way down to Goldsmiths on the overground. And I and I loved it. I heartily recommend. I remember Frank Skinner saying, as a colleague of mine, stand we've been doing stand up similar length of time. Along, we've known each other a very long time. Mm. But I remember him saying once, "Lessons are good." And just as a motto, as a mantra, I thought it was a very wise thing to say. That's great. Lessons are good, yeah. and if you're always having lessons in something, he said, it doesn't matter what it is. He's a he's a former teacher as you may know but if it's golf or piano or swahili or writing Mm. or knitting or basket weaving it doesn't matter but if you're having lessons in something there's a notion of self-improvement of achievement of progress of being the opposite of stagnant and and i think it's a it's a wise motto i had that conversation with my grandson this very morning oh really yes he has this habit he's got a he's got an ipad extraordinary world we live in and uh he tends to ring me well he facetimes me at about half past eight every morning oh that's nice without anybody knowing it's really lovely <laughs> the thing goes and i go oh hiya freddie and then we chat and he gets under his covers so that his dad doesn't know he's doing it oh what, what age is freddie say so six Oh, nice. We were talking about the fact that he had to do his schoolwork, and I was saying, have you got English today? And he said, yes. I said, it's great English, isn't it? Because there's so many words. I mean, even if you spend <laughs> all your life trying to learn them all, you'd never learn all of them. And he said, oh. And I said, well, don't be put off by that, Freddie. <laughs> What's the point, then, if I can't learn them all? And so should we say that, that this is the first item in your time capsule, your book? Yes, let's. It might seem like an act of uh, vanity or... Of all the things in the world that you could choose, uh, you choose your own book about your <laughs> life. And and, uh, and in some ways, it's, you know, all comedians have a, there's a hell of an ego. Um, <laughs> uh, for better or worse, it's part of the job. Uh, you, you have to have it. Otherwise, why in a room of a thousand people do you think you should be the one with the microphone? That's, mm-hmm. that is the mindset. It's fine. Everyone, don't worry. I'll do the talking. <laughs> you will sit there, look at me. And at the end, adulation. I can handle any amount of adulation. <laughs> so it is a peculiar uh, job to do, and and it, there is an ego there, but it is a wonderful thing to have an aptitude for, and the sound of laughter and, and, and thinking of something off the top of your head and being able to make people laugh and link things and respond to what's said. And it's a, just a joy when a stand-up gig is going well and you're happy up there and the audience are enjoying it. It's something that we really really miss at the moment um and i and i hope it comes back so mm. so yes i have enough of an ego to choose my own work but uh, and i'll excuse myself by saying that just ignoring my memoir is about the most profoundly difficult time of my life and it's about as much as it is about my fractured and difficult disastrous at times relationship with my father it's about my mother who i lost when i was 6 
Mm. And it's about creating a memorial for her and the memories of her and setting down every single memory that I had and setting them down. Yeah. And trying to present them for other people to read. And they're tiny, some of them, aren't they? I mean, really just, just a little, just almost fragments. like a smell or a, or a, just a, a door opening. It really is the moments. It made me absolutely remember my own parents at that time in that way. But we all have those very fleeting moments that we remember. And that's all you remember. Well, I think that's right. And I think when you talk about your your little grandson, Freddie, age six, that's mm. the age I was when my mother died. Had I been able to go under the covers with an iPad and speak to grandparents, you know, on a daily basis, in a private way, without it being reported back to anyone, just yeah. our chat, mm-hmm. it, would, it could have and would have changed my life. And, and uh it's you really do treasure and remember the most fleeting things. Mm. One of the things I remember from the book that still makes me smile, and I'm so glad I remembered it and set it down, is we had a workman at the house. I think he was painting. I can't remember what he was doing. And my mum made him a cup of tea. I mean, I must have been three or four. Mm. And, uh, and I said to him, what's your name? And I do really remember him saying, because it's such an unusual name, but it was a guy who was at the top of the hit parade at the time. <laughs> he said, it's Engelbert Humperdinck. And I, so at which point my mum laughed. <laughs> and I thought, he's made a laugh. What's going on? This is what I want to do. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought he was mucking about. That's not a real name. And I said, what's your name? And he goes, Engelbert Humperdinck. Again. <laughs> and she laughed again and I gave up. But that... That I really—that's just such a small thing. Mm. But I set all those things down, all those little memories, and many other things. And it took three years of of real uh, the effort when you're writing a memoir or an autobiography of any kind. The effort of memory—memory memory is such an elusive, slippery thing. Yeah, uh, for all of us. And we have photos, and we have some memories that we return to, and we be, we begin to shape some version of our own past in our minds by treading some of the same paths more frequently than others. But it's amazing what can be triggered by objects you might find around the house or in the loft or at the back of some cupboard. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, there's that thing, and that reminds me of such and such a day. Yes. And, of course, if you don't, and we haven't in our family, and this is another thing, if you're dealing with bereavement and loss, you must do, is you must talk to one another about your memories of the person. You must keep those lines of communication because people have other memories. Well, what about the day we went to such and such? I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, we went and did, we did this and you fell over and we did that. We went there. I don't remember that. That's all true. I remember it. Oh, really? Well, I remember this. Oh, really? I don't remember that. And you can together, you can create the person. Yes. But alone, it's hard. You relied entirely on one person to remember someone. It would be a false image of them. You need a, a group memory. You do, really. For me, with my family, I was able through my auntie and uncle in Australia, my auntie's my mum's sister, and one or two other relatives here, older relatives, and just was able to piece together other little snippets. Mm. But it was a real effort to do, and I realised that you can't remember things chronologically. You can only come in through, as I say, through an object or a moment or a picture or something and then you're in the fog, really. You're trying mm. to, what, is, what does that remind me of? It reminds me of that. Why is that connected? That must, there must be a reason for that. Or maybe it's that's connected. And so you began almost like a kind of investigation in the dark mm. to recreate as truthfully and faithfully as you can. What you are able to, to do is you're able to bring the emotional memories. You know what, what it all means. Mm. You know what the feelings are. 
but the day to day, you know, who wore what and what time it was or what day of the week or month. I don't remember what happened last week, do you? No. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you don't really remember it. It's like you say, you have these photographs or you may have a piece of cine film that you remember seeing. So in fact, what you're doing is you're thinking about the photograph and you're creating a world around it. I find that with my own children, that they'll talk about something they remember. And what I know they're talking about is they remember the photograph looking at it years later and saying, where was that? What was that? But you didn't have that experience with your mother. You didn't have that back reference, as it were. You couldn't go to her, what's that, mum? What were we doing there? So these memories really are those those extraordinarily true memories. They are um, very significant events that at the time feel humdrum. One of them is she picks me up from school and... My brother and I had a spud gun, an old-fashioned spud gun, and uh, I couldn't get it off him. And there was one between two, and he was older, and I was beginning to feel frustrated. Also, I like to keep my toys quite pristine, and things were never pristine once they'd been through his hands. (laughs) So anyway, my mum turns up at the school gate with a paper bag from the toy shop, and I open it up, and there's a brand-new spud gun. And I hadn't asked for the spud gun. I didn't know how she knew that I wanted the... but it was absolutely overwhelming that she knew me so well that she could hit the nail on the head in that way. And I've been saying to people for years, don't buy me presents, I'm terrible at presents. And the reason I'm terrible at presents is no one will ever be able to match the spot card at the moment. <laughs> so it's too important. Yeah. Uh, and that, So it's things like that, that that stay with you for whatever reason and a high of joy or a real trauma. I mean, if anyone's ever had their hand shut in the car door, They'll remember that. (laughs) If you've ever been hit by a car and knocked off your bike, you'll remember that. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. It's a really beautiful book. It's beautifully written. Thank you. So, you know, that going to Goldsmith, sitting in the library, trying to get through the, the pass and it not working, it was worth persevering, I have to say. Thank you. One of the good things about them was they put me onto other good books. You know, they're very good at saying, oh, you're writing something a bit like that. Mm. You should read this, this, and this. And so I I read Reading in the Dark by Seamus Dean or Toast by Nigel Slater. (laughs) Uh, Wonderful memoir, that is. Um, Mm. uh, Boyhood by Kutsia. um, The Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Auburn. And if you don't fancy reading my book, read any of those they're all wonderful uh, autobiographical novels or memoirs highly recommended and none of them i wouldn't have come to any of them without being on that course no all right we're going to put your book into the time capsule for you there it is thank you preserved so that's your first item alan <laughs> there we go we've got four to go yes well uh, the thing i want to get rid of mm-hmm. is a terrible decision that i was that i talk about in my book that was made when i was 10 And it was that I should miss my final year of primary school and go straight to secondary school, uh, kind of an old-fashioned all-boys public school that my father went to. Mm. And I went in a year early, missing what is now year six. My daughter's in the middle of year six at the moment. My middle child is in year five. And the idea of going straight from where my middle child is 
to Bancroft's public school in Woodford is a, a really, that is a terrible idea. Mm. And my daughter's working so hard in year six. There's so much work to do. They learn so much and they develop so much emotionally when they're in that final year of primary school, when they're in the top class and they're the oldest kids. I feel f- greatly for her that she's been in lockdown for much of it and missed a lot of the fun of being in year six. Mm, being the oldest at that age. Absolutely. It's a fabulous thing. And being given by the teachers some responsibility with the younger ones and those kind of things. And I also, when I was in year five uh, at primary school, I loved our teacher, Mrs Thurgood, and she looked after me uh, a lot then and and she would have been my teacher in year six. Mm. Um, so I don't know whether to put Mrs. Saragut in my year five class in the time capsule as a, or, to throw, or to throw my secondary school in, never to be seen again. It's tough enough, isn't it, to move to a secondary school from that thing of being, you know, like well, top dog, really. But that's not how you feel. You feel important. And then you go up to this school and, and that's what gives you the strength to to persevere through that being the youngest again. Yes, I think so. You jumped it. That's not nice. You know, I was doing quite well. I was, But the truth is I was thriving in the environment that Mrs Thurgood created, and I wasn't the only um, kid who was doing well. There were, there were some bright kids in that class. My best friend, uh, one of my best friends there, uh, stayed, she stayed on in year six and ended up doing classics at, Cambridge, I think, and uh, I, uh, through a few detours, did a drama degree at the University of Kent, which I'm very proud, mm. but academically, it's a light years away from a classic history <laughs> <at> Cambridge. <laughs> well, Canterbury's got a lot of old buildings as well. Yeah. yeah. You're up on the hill, though, aren't you? Yeah, the thing about the University of Kent, anyone who's not been there, you're on this hill looking over Canterbury. So the view of the cathedral was really special, especially when it's floodlit. Mm. But holy smoke, the wind blows in across (laughs) East Kent. (laughs) And that is a really bleak, cold hill, you know, in January and February. So did you eventually enjoy going on to the, the senior school? No, it was a disaster from beginning to end. Right. And I, and I def- unequivocally, that's my thing. I would bury, bury, bury. Mm. Going there at that age, making that move, wasn't really asked, wasn't really consulted. Was it your father's decision? Yeah, and he loved that school. And every time we drove past it, he would say, there's my old school. And they plainly were, to use the cliche of the time, the school days are the happiest days of your life. Mm. And for him, they were. And and I couldn't say, oh, no, I don't want to go. I love Mrs Thurgood and I want to be in year six. So it was terrible. OK, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, and welcome to part two of my time capsule with the lovely Alan Davis. Let's find out what else he would like to preserve in his time capsule. But I would I would put in the time capsule. I would put in my two years at Loughton College of Further Education. <laughs> I went to Loughton College of Further Education as a 16-year-old, having dropped out of Bancroft after the lower sixth, mm. believing that I would just go and work for the local paper. I honestly thought I could just go down to the uh, Epping Forest Gazette and say I want a job, and they'd give me one. <laughs> and I could begin a career, well, I think what I wanted to be was a football reporter. And I went down to the offices of the local paper and asked if they had any jobs for teenage school leavers. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, they didn't. No. And uh, and it's 1982. No one had any jobs for anyone. No. It was the, the height of the catastrophic first term of Margaret Thatcher. Where there were four million plus unemployed. Mm-hmm. It was a really dreadful time. So I diverted into joining C&D and going on marches. And um, didn't really know what I was going to do. I worked for two weeks. And my stepmother had a friend who ran a greengrocer's, and I and I, he gave me a job for two weeks. I didn't realise it was for two weeks. It turned out his son was on holiday, and when he got back, I lost the job. <laughs> but I had a lovely two weeks in the greengrocer's. I love working there. I love putting things in paper bags and spinning them around. Yeah. I was quite good at mental arithmetic, so I was quite good at doing the adding up and handling the money. <laughs> I really liked going in the cold store and getting a sack full of white cabbages. You know, I liked the job. He was a very nice man, Doug Smith, who ran the greengrocers. And I enjoyed it. But when his son came back, I was out of a job. And uh. that autumn, I went to the local FE college where they, have a, where they were running a media studies course. Mm. And media studies was a new thing, much derided often these days. But it was, for me, it was absolutely fantastic. I wanted to, as I say, I thought I wanted to be a football reporter. I thought I'd go there and learn about the media. And there was an A-level called Communication Studies, which was fascinating. Mm. And attached to the course, they had a little television studio. You did film studies O-level, television O-level, and drama. Never thought I'd ever want to do drama. Had never crossed my mind. No. And they said, you can do two A-levels, you'll do communications and one other, or you can do three um, communications and two others. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to do three A-levels. There's no way I'll do the work. I can't. <laughs> I'd really become really lazy at Bancroft. <laughs> and so I had the choice between theatre studies and sociology. Mm-hmm. And I went and I met the sociology teacher, a guy called Dave, who's a bit earnest, I thought. 
And I met the drama teacher, a guy called Piers, and he was very jolly and jovial and said, try it for a week. If you don't like it, do something else. So we played theatre games for a week, which I loved. And I chose theatre studies A-level. Mm. I subsequently found out that Piers and Dave were really good friends and they were in a comedy double act on the fledgling London comedy circuit. No. The only thing I remember them doing in their act is they both fell over backwards at one point and on the soles of their shoes, well, they had all four feet lined up facing the audience, it said the word soul boys, which was, <laughs> <laughs> which was a terrible, a terrible joke. And they got into a lot of trouble to go and it goes they listed in a big groan. But Piers became a, a terrific ally of mine. And uh, when I ran away from home after a fight with my father, Piers gave me the keys to his flat and said, you can just stay there for a week. When I came out of the University of Kent and wanted to be a comedian, I got in touch with all the comedy clubs in Time Out, and it turns out that Piers was running a comedy club called the Black Cat Cabaret in Stoke Newington, and he gave me my first gig. Brilliant. And everything turned on its head when I met him and I started doing theatre and drama at Loughton College. Mm -hmm. And I was set free. I I had the opportunity to be in plays and pantomimes and devised shows and I loved being at that place and that experience led to me wanting to do comedy and wanting to be an actor and do everything that I've spent the last 30 plus years doing it all began it all began in that uh, in that college well thank god that Dave was the <laughs> earnest one <laughs> Imagine. It turned out, actually, it turned out to be the really funny guy. <laughs> you just didn't get the deadpan. I should have just done, I should have just done theatre studies and sociology. <laughs> but the thing I regretted not doing, I always regretted not doing English. I was persuaded by my father when I was at Bancroft to do economics at A-level. He's an accountant, or he was. Ah. And he said, it's fascinating. And I just remember just nearly dying with the boredom of it. And at the time, in 1982, there was this brilliant television series on that you may remember called Hill Street Blues. Mm, great show. And I loved Hill Street Blues so much. Yeah. I thought it was the greatest thing that had ever been on. I would make the case today that at that time, nothing had ever come close, you know. There was something about this kind of uh, ensemble that they created in that show, rather than it being about just asking Hutch, who I also loved. <laughs> but I know, anyway, my economics teacher loved Hill Street Blues, and that was the only thing about him that I liked. That's what that kept me <laughs> interested. This can't be this dull. He likes Hill Street Blues. He must be a great guy. But holy smoke, this is boring. And I didn't do English, which was my best subject. I liked novels. I liked stories. I became a storyteller for a job. And I attended a conference a few years ago of further education colleges and teachers and lecturers. Mm. And I was invited to speak at one of these events as a someone who had spoken publicly about the value of further education as a bridge from school to life or from school to higher education. Mm. And I was able to do so with some enthusiasm, as you can tell. <laughs> and I said, my great regret is that I didn't do English A-level. And I had two or three further education lecturers contacting me on social media after that event saying, Alan, it's not too late. You can do English A-level anytime you want. Mm. You can do it online. You can sign up, do it. And it, and it is on my bucket list. 
<laughs> I do. I did an MA instead. I know it's, just, it's sort of a strange way round, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm going backwards through my education. I'm going to do the eleven plus. <laughs> it's a much derided thing, a sixth form college. But I have to say, you know, there are lots of kids who just don't fit the model or don't enjoy the model of that thing of going through O levels, A levels, university. It doesn't work for them. And you need those alternatives. You need something else that's a bit more, you know, so you go to sixth form college, it's a bit like going to college. They treat you more like an adult. You don't have to wear a school uniform, those sort of things. And a lot of kids are desperate to do that when they're at 16. They're desperate to not be a school child anymore. I think that's absolutely right. And I think I'm just them using my first name. They knew what we all were. Many of us had dropped out of school. Mm -hmm. One guy was doing that. He was 21. He was doing the course and signing on at the same time. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't have been doing that, of course, <laughs> but everybody knew that he had a young baby and he had no money. And I blame Thatcher. I, we all blamed Thatcher. Yeah. And we all said, listen, how's he going to look? He's doing a course. He's trying to, he's studying. He's got a kid. Come on. He should be supported better than he is. And so, and they would say, we're going to help you out here. Don't worry. Come to college, do the thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, of course, that was in contravention of <laughs> probably at least two laws. Whereas the school would come down and you just for running down the bank onto the playing fields instead of using the steps. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible behaviour. That's the end of your life. God. You'll never be trusted again. <laughs> I just wanted to ride a motorbike up and down that bank. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my son, who is the producer of this podcast, who's now in his 30s, uh, dropped out of school when he was 12. 12? Yeah. Wouldn't go to school. Wow. He said, I can't go. I, I can't do it. So he, he didn't. We taught him at home. And then when it came to the point of doing uh, GCSEs, we found a school that would take him in. And it was a school that was for people who had either been bullied and therefore dropped out because of that or were bullies and had been expelled. And they put them both together. It was an extraordinary thing. And it really worked. Wow. And he did extraordinarily well at that school. It took him a long time to get in, to, you know, to trust the place. And he only really spent about six months working on his GCSEs and got fantastic results. And we thought, great, mm. well, now you can go back to school and do some A-levels. And I suddenly saw this future of you know, education for him. And he went back for about a week to school and just fell apart again. Oh. We were desperate. And my wife found out he was very, very interested in music technology. And we were told by a friend that that the local sixth form college had a course. So she took him to the college and saw the man who was in charge and said, is there any chance you can get on it? I know it's already started, but is there any chance? And the man said, well, it's completely full. I can't. Um, And then he spoke to John for a while and talked to him about you know, what have you been doing? Well, what are you interested in? And John told him the things he'd been doing. And the man said, okay, I'll make a space for him. And it, it, it changed his life. Mm-hmm. Well, they do. They do. that. That's a lovely story. Mm. And that's very similar to my own story, although there were, there were other places available, <laughs> media studies. <laughs> it's a very similar thing that I met people there who you don't realise it when you're a teenager you are about to go through a trapdoor and, you know, finding your way out is going to be tough. And they know that they are there at a, such an important moment in so many young people's lives. Mm. 
to put a hand out to help them. I just really, and it's absolutely, uh, for me, uh, my experience at Further Education College is definitely in my in my time capsule. That's, yeah. uh, that's definitely one of the most key and important moments, not just, of so many people's lives, yeah. including John, by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. So there we are. Well, well done for choosing it. So that goes into the time capsule. What a lovely thing to put in. Uh, so that's three items we've had. So what's next? Uh, well, I've got my book is in, and the FE College is in, the public school's buried to oh, death. Oh, that's gone. That's buried, yeah. <laughs> that's gone, don't worry. i got two thumbs up left, haven't I? Yeah. The thing I think about most of the time, the thing I think about when I see, like today we were out walking the dog with the kids and there were lumps of ice about and I was kicking them into imaginary goals. <laughs> and if I pick my phone up and check the news, it's the same thing. If I look for television, it's something to look at if, if Katie's putting the kids to bed or if I'm on my own in the living room, I turn the TV on and I look for the same thing. If I pick up a paper, I turn to the same page. I'm just obsessed with, with Chelsea. No. <laughs> oh, you see? This is how obsessed I am. Even that very funny joke, Michael, causes me pain, physical pain. <laughs> My team, as you know full well, is Arsenal. But it's not even Arsenal that's going in the time capsule. It's just the ball. It's just the thing at your feet. Just mm. Uh, Arsene Wenger is, of course, the great hero of any Arsenal fans, the wonderful manager we have for so many years. And he said all he wanted for his players, really, was for them to have the same joy with the ball at their feet as they had kicking a can down the road when they were five years old. Uh. Why is it so pleasurable to have that thing at your feet and to be in that game? And I know lots of children fall out of love with sport early because they don't have an aptitude or they don't have the opportunity or they whatever it is, whatever feeling it is around it that turns them off, they get turned off and then they don't do sport. Mm. And I do remember about three years ago now, my daughter is my eldest of three, that there's a little uh, football club, well, not little actually, quite a big football club that trains near us mm. called Highgate Rangers and they had all boys teams, they didn't have girls teams. And hardly any clubs did, even three or four years ago. Mm. And they got a bit of encouragement, I think, from the Football Association to start up girls' teams, to encourage girls' involvement, because girls were encouraged to go along and play with the boys in mixed training from, you know, ages sort of five, six through up until 11 and 12. But they would just drop out. And when they started the girls' teams, the participation went from two girls to about 42 girls within a matter of about six months. <laughs> girls started coming from all around. And my daughter now goes there every Sunday, and it's a social event as much as anything. It's hard to get them to listen to the coach, but the balls are at their feet. They've got the kit. They have fixtures every other week. And my daughter was nearly lost to sport. That Honestly, I don't think she'd have taken the game up. It's a moment where I could see it happening. Maybe later in life she'd have found tennis or some other game, but there was a chance that she wouldn't. There was a chance that she thought it's not for her. My middle child, um, he loves football and he plays, and the younger one's probably going to be the best of the lot because he has to compete with the older ones. But mm. I throw the ball out for them, it bounces away from them, and they chase it. <laughs> and there's something, there's something about the ball at your feet, kicking it into a space, kicking a pebble between a lamppost and a wall, finding, you know, I'm visualising goalposts and 
you hear kids commentating on what they're doing as if they're watching the TV. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it is they want to put in the time capsule. Maybe it's just the football, but it's it's something more. It's the feeling of playing, the free, the feeling of that that I remember so well from being a kid. Mm. And uh, in the last year or so, I haven't been able to play football right, because I've had a, a sore Achilles, which has been driving me mad. But I have a weekly Zoom with all these guys who I played football with for a number of years, and they're all, nearly all in their 50s, some in their 60s, a few stragglers in their 40s. Mm. They talk about it as if nothing else in life matters. I mean, some of them are really quite successful in their careers. Yes. <laughs> Done some very important work with lots of responsibility. <laughs> and all they want to talk about is the game on Friday. And and so that feeling of, of, of a love of play and of sport and of the ball mm. is something I want that that I would put in the yeah in my time capsule. And you're right. That very first thing, that early discovery of that, when you're very small, my oldest grandson, who's eight, actually rang me up the other day, extremely excited to tell me that because I'm a Manchester United fan, he told me, <laughs> "Granddad, Granddad," I said, "Yes." He said, "Manchester United won the penalty shootout nine eight," and I went. Where was this? He went, in the garden. <laughs> That's fantastic, though, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And it will never end, no. you know. The, the need to to play. and One of the nice things about the coaches who coach my kids is they're, very, they're quite gentle with them. They don't berate them. They don't yell at them when they get things wrong. And uh, and I mentioned Arsene Wenger earlier. I remember one of the players who signed for Arsenal said of him, they said, what's good about him? And he said, I, he just said to me, uh, you've got a wonderful left foot. You should concentrate on your left foot. It's one of your strengths. And your anticipation and the, and the way you read the game, these are your strengths. Concentrate on these things. And he said, if I felt 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. All my life, people have been telling me my right foot's terrible and I can't head it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, Vega obviously thought, well, it's too late for his right foot and his heading, but he, what's the point of going on about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is what you're good at. <laughs> and, and it's it's kind of counterintuitive. It restores a little bit of his love for playing. He forgets his weaknesses, goes for his strengths and keeps the love of playing mm. through, you know, the real intensity of a t- career in top-level sport, which is a pretty... As we know, it's pretty tough for some of them. Yeah. There's something about it it goes beyond then loving kicking the ball and being in the open air and playing. It goes into some understanding, some spatial awareness and geometry and speed and motion and some sort of 3D vision, including rear view vision. Mm -hmm. These people, how on earth does he always know where everybody is all the time? Sometimes when when I park our car, our car is... It's got so many safety features on it. So many things are bleeping and yelling at you whenever you're doing any <laughs> manoeuvre. There's a camera, massive camera on showing what's happening behind you. It bleeps in fork. And, and really, it's as if it's saying, there's no way you could do this without help. You're, you're a use. I thought I'd be parking cars since I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for really a long, nearly 50 years. <laughs> Shut up, you're putting me off. You're putting me off. And it is putting me off. <laughs> yeah. And the kids, the kids are in the back going, why is it making all this noise? Why is it bleeping? <laughs> <laughs> 
and I just feel like, you know, a player like Fabregas or a great player, you know, or Skulls, if you're a United fan, similar, mm. they don't need all the warning lights or signs or they just know where everything is. They can park the car with their eyes shut. That's the kind of <laughs> metaphor for being a great player. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> there we are. Okay, so well, I'll put that into the time cast. You, you will forever have a football at your feet. Nice. Mm. Very nice. Okay, we've got one more thing. One more. Well, I I wanted to put travel, but it's too, you know that's that's not enough. But I, I enjoy most journeys, buses, trains. I had a trip once by myself, and a, and a bit of a low point in my late thirties. I went to Vietnam on my own for three weeks, mm. and it it was wonderful, just a joy from first minute to the last. I flew to Hanoi. I chose Vietnam because the time of year I was going, uh, other countries around Southeast Asia where I wanted to go because I like the food and the climate. Other countries were a bit monsoony, a bit rainy season. Mm -hmm. Vietnam promised better weather. The history of it is still relatively unscathed for tourism compared to Thailand. I'm talking about 2005 Mm -hmm. now. I thought, let's do it. Let's go there. And went to Hanoi, had a hotel room, and then kind of made it up. And I went to Ha Long Bay in the north of Vietnam and stayed on a liverboard boat in Ha Long Bay. There's nowhere more beautiful I've ever been to. And that, only the South Island of New Zealand can come close. <laughs> uh, got a train up into the mountains and found a guide and trekked through the rice paddies. And I really felt like I'd gone off the edge of the earth almost. It took me in to meet families who lived in houses on stilts and sat you down and gave you tea and wanted to sell you things, didn't want to beg, wanted to sell you things that they'd made. Mm. And I bought this beautiful red fabric thing with some little bells on it and that you hung around your neck. And and they all thought this was hilarious. And I said to my guide afterwards, why is this so funny? Why, why are they laughing so much? And they said, "What?" You, he said to me, what you've bought there? I said, it's lovely. I really like it. It's like a, sou- it's a souvenir. He said, yeah, but it's a wedding garment. <laughs> They come in pairs. The bride wears one. The groom wears the other one. You've only bought one. It's completely useless without the other one. They don't mind selling you it, but what idiot would only buy one when they know it's for a wedding day and they come in pairs? Uh, so, oh, we laughed. Anyway, <laughs> then we stopped at the side of the road and he went off and, and he came back with the most delicious, you know, I know it's a cliche of travelling, but the most delicious food off a stall at the side of the road, you know, street food. I went down through Hoi An and Huey and all the way down to Saigon. And it was an extraordinary experience. I love travelling. My other favourite trip, Katie and I, my wife, went on a motorbike just through Spain, staying at Salamanca and Toledo and Cordoba and all these magnificent places in Spain. And the mosque in Cordoba, I don't know if you've ever been, and if you haven't, I recommend it, but the mosque in Cordoba is so beautiful. And... It consists of dozens and dozens of columns that appear to go on for infinity. And you stand in this cool, silent place. It's unbelievable. And when the uh, the Spanish were driving the Moors out of Andalusia and back into North Africa, the instruction came down to destroy all the mosques. Raise them to the ground, there must be nothing left. Mm-hmm. It was pretty brutal. And the message came back from the people sent to destroy the mosque at Cordoba, we can't do it. We can't do it. It's too beautiful. We won't do it. Wow. So so the message came back to Cordoba, then you shall build a cathedral in the middle of the mosque. 
And it's unbelievable. You walk through these columns and suddenly in the middle of it all is a, a Catholic cathedral with all of, I would say, quite gaudy <laughs> gold and decoration and imagery. And it, you can't quite believe it happened. But then you have these two now, these two extraordinary monuments to these two different faiths that date back such a long time. And we wandered around there together and got back on the motorbike and went somewhere. So that journey was amazing. And, the, and my journey that I had alone in Vietnam was amazing. And it's hard to separate them. But there's something about travel, unplanned, no agenda travel, a feeling of needing to do it, wanting to do it, doing it for its own sake. And when it ends, just wishing it hadn't ended and you could go back to that state of mind. And I can't go back. I don't. I can't get back to where I was when I went to Vietnam by myself. And it's hard for me to kind of fathom, really, that it was 12 months later that I was on a motorbike in Spain with Katie, who I'd never met when I went to Vietnam. Yeah. And so I was in a very happy place with this person who's now, you know, we're married with three children. Those two trips or that period, um, but I think particularly for me, the the experiences in Vietnam were, I think it was a kind of miniature midlife crisis happening just shy of my 40th birthday happening in that, in that amazing place. It made you feel, it's a country that makes you feel ridiculous for complaining. <laughs> it, it just it's a country full of people what's perhaps not understood about the what they call the american war what we call the vietnam war is that 10 percent of the population of vietnam were killed one in ten and something in the, of the region of four million people god it was literally a de- the population was decimated and absolute carnage was wrought mm. and so what you have is a dynamic youthful population, uh, certainly as it was getting on for 20 years ago now, 16 years ago when I went. Also, of course, they were under the yoke of communism for a long time, and that was sort of lifted, allowing the the freewheeling entrepreneurial spirit to take hold. Mm -hmm. And so they're still a communist country, but everyone knows how to (laughs) make cash, and and that's what they want to do. How to sell you half a wedding garment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they will sell you half a wedding garment and laugh in your face, but they would rather they'd rather do that than just please, please, sir, please, and beg. Yeah. There's some pride in the place. The food is extraordinarily delicious. Alan, you're going to have to stop. We're right in the middle of lockdown. If you keep this up, I'm just going, <laughs> that's it. I'm just going to get on my bicycle and go. I don't care. I can't. I can't take it. I I loved it there. I loved it there. I'd love to get with Katie on a motorbike and go anywhere. But if there's something that I could put in a time, in a really in a time capsule and mm-hmm. keep, mm-hmm. it's the memory of that trip to Vietnam, the spirit and the energy of that place, the how to bounce back from the worst possible thing mm. to something extraordinary i was put on a motorbike by lots of people whizzing around on scooters in hanoi you cannot believe that more people aren't killed on bikes every day (laughs) but someone pulls up alongside you if you're evidently a tourist says get on the back get on the back get on the back i'll take you around and initially you don't want to do it because it looks terrifying Mm. this guy took me around and we whizzed through hanoi and he took me to a place where there was 
a part that wasn't built on. It was surrounded on four sides by buildings, and on one side was a school, and then there was a sort of rice paddy that was really just a lake, and sticking out of it was the tail fin of a B-52 bomber. He just says to me, American, American, American. And I said, I understand, I understand. I know exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. He says, we keep, we keep. And then he points to the school, and the school overlooks this kind of pond, really, mm. with this bit of the bomber in it. And he says, to remember, to remember for the kids in the school. It was amazing. It was an amazing moment. And, I, and you know, we, he had really just a few words. I had no Vietnamese, but we spent the whole afternoon together. And, and it was a special thing, you know. Mm. For me, it's worth putting in a time capsule. Well, then we shall. <laughs> we shall. How lovely. Well, what a gorgeous set of things you put into time capsule. And how fascinating it's been to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. I very much enjoyed it. Me too. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest... Alan Davis. If you'd like to find out more about Alan's life, then I can highly recommend his extraordinary autobiographical work, Just Ignore Him, available in all good bookstores, and probably all the bad ones as well. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on Acast, or wherever you normally get your podcasts, to listen to the other 97 episodes, and to receive all other episodes as they're released. If you get the chance, please do rate the show and maybe leave a small review. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you search me or at my TC pod. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. That's a familiar name. And the music, available on Spotify, was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music. Not so familiar. We'll be back very soon with our 99th episode. 99th. Yes, 99. 99 ep... I mean, that is almost an emergency call. And after that, it is our 100th. But we don't like to make a fuss. I'll just check to see how rehearsals are going. That's it. Yeah, a bit more volume. Very nice. Don't forget the cannons. Can we have the cannons? That's it. And another one, please. Another one. Great. Yeah, not too many. Thank you. Oh, for goodness sake. Right. Release the doves. That's it. Yep, and the balloons, and the bells. Mind the balloons and the doves, will you? That's it. Dum bum 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 bum. And the banner. It's the hundredth. It's the hundredth show. The hundredth show. It's the hundredth show. Yeah, not bad, everybody. Thanks very much. Uh, Take five. Yeah, looking good. Subtle. Bye. Bye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.